And good afternoon and welcome to a WFPL news special. It's part of the next Louisville Education Project. I'm Devin Kadiyama, and today we're talking about the challenges urban school districts face. You may find the number surprising. Less than half of Jefferson County public school students are ready for college and career, and the graduation rate is under 70%. Then when you look at other urban districts, you see similar struggles. They often have lower graduation rates and perform worse on state tests than their peers. And school districts like in Chicago and Detroit have nearly 90% low-income and minority students. That's one end of, end of the spectrum. On the other, you have cities like Cincinnati that have high low-income rates but has a higher graduation rate than the state. The next hour, we'll discuss what these urban challenges are and how cities and districts are approaching them. And we'll be taking your calls this hour at 502-814-8255. That's 502-814-TALK. We'll also be monitoring Facebook and WFPL News for Twitter. We're joined in studio by University of Louisville Professor Craig Hawkbine and Jefferson County School Board Chair Diane Porter, and by phone from Los Angeles, Dr. Gary Orfield, who's the co-director of the UCLA Civil Rights Project and was in JCPS to recommend changes to the district's student assignment plan in 2011, and from the City University of New York's Graduate Center, Dr. Jean Anyon, who is a professor of sociology and education policy. Everyone, welcome to the show. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Great to be with you. Invitations to both Metro Government and Jefferson County Public School staff were also offered, but both de- uh, declined to come on. Uh, Dr. Onion, we'll start with you. Uh, you spent a good part of your career researching and looking at urban policy as it relates to education. Obviously, it's a complicated issue, but if you can briefly describe what some of the driving factors that prohibit urban school systems from showing better results, uh, student results are, um, that'd be great to, to start with that. Sure. One of the things that I have found is that many of the problems that we see in urban schools arise outside of the education arena. For example, one of the uh, policies in this country that keeps people poor, therefore keeps neighborhoods poor, and therefore keeps school districts poor, is the minimum wage. I mean, the minimum wage, for example, um, is $7.25 an hour, and a person who works full-time year-round at that wage makes $14,000 a year. That's less than the poverty line for a family of three. So that is an example of a piece of legislation that is changeable that affects education because when people are working full-time and still poor, then the neighborhoods they live in are poor and the schools are poor. There are other policies as well, of course. Um, Take taxation policy. There is plenty of money in this country to create jobs and to build schools and pay teachers more, support them more. But to my way of thinking, all that money is in the wrong hands. It's in the hands of the wealthy hedge funds and bankers and, and rich people who used to be taxed at 70, 90 percent until the 1960s. Now, of course, their taxes are down to about 15%. So one of the things that we could do is to change that policy as well, take some of that money that the the wealthy have and distribute it to school districts and to families and to communities to create jobs for people, uh, jobs that need doing, and train people to do them. Um, There are other policies, such as public transit policy. You know, a lot of the jobs that are created these days for entry-level folks are created out in affluent suburbs. 
And public transportation doesn't go there from where poor people live. Um, public transit goes from city to, to city and from suburb to suburb. And, and, and Ms. Porter, you've been uh, involved in several tax increases as board decisions with Jefferson County. How difficult is it of a sell to the community, to the, to the school district itself, to, to increase taxes in that way? Well, we always want to make sure that we have enough resources in the district to take care of the programs that we have for our students. Uh, we would prefer to not have uh, taxes, but that's the only way that we can guarantee that we will have the adequate re- resources to put into the local school. So um, sometimes uh, we try to explain, and we're doing a better job of that by putting all the information online for the community to understand the uh, rationale and, and why we are going forward with uh, the tax situation currently uh, because of everything that's happening at the federal level and uh, which will trickle down to the state level that will impact the funding sources that come directly to the school district, which will impact um, how we sustain programs in our local schools. And uh, Dr. Hawkbein, you have talked about these three pillars of of what works in schools for turning around some student achievement. One I know was poverty. Um, Can you talk about briefly the other two? Well, when we look at research, there tend to be three factors that account for a lot of the success or failure in various student metrics. The first is poverty. Um, The second is the quality of the teachers in the classrooms. Um, We know that the better teachers that you can provide in front of students, we can sometimes um, overcome the effects of poverty, especially in schools in which there are high concentrations of uh, student poverty. And then there's this third factor that someone is mediating is the leader in the school. And so this is where um, those two, and actually those three, if you can imagine, interact in some ways, is that quality leaders are needed to let, to number one, identify, motivate, help, facilitate, um, and sometimes, quite frankly, get out of the way of high-quality teachers, but also find ways to um, build partnerships, develop innovations with the number of constituencies that are required to ameliorate these effects of poverty. So I mean, obviously, it sounds like this is a multifaceted approach to turning around schools. We've we've heard, you know, the argument that it takes a community to to raise a child type situation. Uh, Doctor Orfield, you've researched a lot of cities, have a lot of um, research around the, the clear economic disparities that certain areas have faced. Can you talk about what these cities look like? What commonalities among them are there for why they struggle to improve? Well, our central cities basically have evolved um, since World War II as the places where people who can't go to the suburbs live and where poverty is concentrated and where disadvantage is concentrated and where economic growth is not really happening. So you have this sorting out of opportunity within metropolitan areas. So it means that in places that have school districts that just encompass the old central city, there's an extremely difficult set of challenges in places in the central cities in places like Connecticut or New Jersey or many others. These cities have almost no middle-class population left. They have declining resources, declining job bases, and so forth. And it's a it's a all-out crisis. Uh, it's not just about education. It's about everything. And typically, they also have politics with low participation and you know, not very strong leadership and people um, competing for jobs because there's such a shortage of jobs. Um, in 
I think Louisville has a real advantage in that it includes much of the suburban ring as well as the central city in one district. And we find that districts like that have a much better chance. Now, the the problems of, that we face are multiple. Kids come to school with tremendous inequalities before um, they ever enter into kindergarten, and the schools usually don't overcome those things. In fact, those most disadvantaged kids in most of our country end up in schools which are almost totally populated by other disadvantaged kids and the least experienced and least qualified teachers um, in an often discouraging situation. It's another advantage Louisville has is that it's committed to maintaining diversity by race and class, which means there's more chance. Um, there's a systematic movement of teachers, good teachers, out of the most impoverished schools into the most advantaged schools because they're punished if they stay in the disadvantaged schools and they're rewarded as in thought to be great teachers if they go to the ones that need them the least. We need to have a much more rational way to reward teachers for staying where they're really needed and not to just congratulate them if they leave those places. Um, the same thing's true with principals. We have to have a reasonable accountability system. We have to concentrate not just on test scores, as NCLB has done in its disastrous way, but we also have to concentrate on whether the students graduate and whether they're ready for any post-secondary education. We should have accountability systems that really reward schools for addressing those issues. And we should have much stronger connections between schools and colleges that happen, you know, with kids going to college-level courses during high school whenever possible. There's many, many aspects that we're, where we can address these issues. We need to address them in social policy and dealing with poverty and dealing with isolation. And we also need to address them systematically inside the schools uh, with really strong preschool um, that's better than what we have now because it can make a real difference. We need to get the good teachers into the schools that need them. Really we quickly, get, um, you, you touched on a lot of issues we're going to get around yeah. to, but I wanted to turn it over to Miss Porter and talk about getting good teachers in good schools. Does JCPS do a, do a, a good enough job uh, finding good teachers and, and keeping them in some of the more troubled schools in the district? I think that we work aggressively uh, to find good teachers and to place them in schools and um, that's probably more of a HR question than a board member question, but I think that they're always out recruiting for fine teachers, and uh, in some of our schools, we're working to see that uh, the teachers are nationally board certified, and the numbers are increasing there. So um, I, I think that we work very hard to make that possible. And a lot of times people say that uh, new teachers come to certain schools and they transfer out immediately. And um, I have not found that to be a true story in researching some of the schools that, uh, that has been mentioned to me. I was with a group of teachers at Thomas Jefferson Middle School yesterday, and some of them have moved out of state to go to, to, to specifically work at, at Thomas Jefferson Middle. Um, I'm curious, though, if, if the union contract, as it's laid out right now, does pose some barriers to um, supporting the, the idea of keeping teachers in, in certain low-income schools or, or even attracting those teachers to go to those schools. 
contract question is probably, um, I'm probably not the best qualified to answer that. We are currently looking at uh, contract negotiations this year. We have worked with JCTA, and I think that we have a good working work, re- working relationship with them. Um, but we always work to, to do better and to provide better for our staff. And, you know, that that's why we try to work with JCTA, because that's, that's our goal, to provide the best opportunities for our teachers. And Dr. Anyan and, and uh, Dr. Um, Orfield, Anyan, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry. Can you point to um, school districts that have uh, looked at the, that contract or worked to try, try to uh, manifest uh, that, that working relationship of, of providing good teachers in, in the lower-performing schools? Um, Yes, can I respond to something that Dr. Orfield said first? Sure. Um, When he was talking about um, desegregating people, uh, you know, and and poverty being concentrated by transportation and discrimination and stuff, there is a, a social policy that's very important here, and that is the zoning laws, local zoning laws. You know and your listeners know that it's illegal to discriminate in terms of housing on the basis of race. But discrimination on the basis of social class uh, happens every day in the sense that local zoning laws prevent uh, multi-unit dwellings and small lots in wealthy neighborhoods. So one of the things that needs to be done to deconcentrate poverty and to spread out the, uh, the isolated populations is to change these zoning laws so that lower-income people can move, have places to move to, from the um, concentrated areas in the inner cities and the the uh, segregated low-income uh, suburbs where they're now um, really forced to live. Can you point to you know, a couple areas? Where, can you point to a couple areas where that's happening? Better? Yeah. Well, uh, in New Jersey, there was um, a um, a set of laws that that were passed. I think in the late 70s or 80s, um, which allowed people to do that, and it's worked quite well, um, where, in fact, low-income folks have moved into these these multi-unit dwellings and have integrated into the neighborhood. Their children do better in school because they're in better schools. They are less likely uh, to be unemployed, the families. So it's something that, that works quite well. Um, in answer to your other question about the uh, unions and the teachers, um, one of the most exciting things that I think is happening in this country is the Chicago Teachers Union and the way it has been working with people in communities to support teachers and to support the schools. That's something that hasn't happened in a long time. Um, and I think it's a very good thing that we ought to to um, support. You know, a lot of what's going on nationally because of um, the kinds of testing that we do is the teachers are getting blamed for things that, that are caused by poverty. And that's not fair. And so the, the Chicago's Teachers Union has come a long way in making, uh, making sure the teachers get the support they need. And one exciting thing that's happened is in Seattle, in Garfield High School, um, 100% of the teachers refused to give the standardized test, test um, in the last few months. I don't know if you've heard about that, right? Yeah, but it's it's beginning to spread to other places around the country, and I think it's something that we need to think about that, and to applaud. The teachers are actually beginning to stand up and say, "Look, these tests are not what I should be doing. I should be teaching." 
and, and beginning to refuse to give the test. And you actually talk a, a lot, uh, you've written a lot about uh, sm smaller social movements that have happened um, in certain cities, certain areas that have led to some pro sort of progress. Um, we'll get to that in just a bit. We have to take a short break. Um, when we come back, more with our guests on the challenges uh, facing urban school districts, and we'll take a look at some of these areas and some of these districts that are finding some success. Uh, that's coming up in just a minute on WFPL's The Next Louisville Education News Special after this. And good afternoon and welcome back. I'm Devin Kadayama. You're listening to a WFPL news special, part of the Next Louisville Education Project. And we're talking about the challenges urban school districts face. We're joined in the studio by University of Louisville Professor Craig Hawkbine and Jefferson County School Board Chair Diane Porter. And by phone from Los Angeles, Dr. Gary Orfield. And in New York, Dr. Gene Anion. We, just before the break, we were talking about some of the some of the things that districts and communities were doing to kind of stir this this social change and this movement towards increasing education attainment. Um, Dr. Anion, in your book *Radical Possibilities*, you cite some success stories, and I'm, I'm wondering if you can share some current things that are going around uh, the nation in certain areas um, that have started little movements, in a sense. Well, one of the most exciting things to me is the unauthorized immigrant youth, you know, uh, young people who want to go to college, want to be able to get Pell Grants and other uh, funding, pay, you know, pay uh, in-state tuition. And there was a long article in the New York Times a few months ago about how these young youth, young people are, who are at risk of getting kicked out of the country um, are actually organizing. They have groups in, in many states, and they are speaking back to legislators and are making a real um, a racket, which is good, uh, so that the people can understand that the DREAM Act ought to be made a reality. And they are, they are becoming much more visible. And then there are some um, progressive unions in this country who are working very hard to to organize in neighborhoods, to work with teachers, with other workers, and with, with families in neighborhoods like SEIU and HERE and some of these other unions. And I think despite the fact that we're constantly hearing that the labor union movement is shrinking, which it is, at the same time, the unions that are out there, some of them are doing some great work with communities. And then we have community organizing. In New York itself, there are over 100 uh, groups working in communities for educational uh, opportunity in, in uh, urban neighborhoods. And they are faith-based groups. They are community development organi organizations. And they are also um, political groups seeking justice. And I think they are operating under the radar. Uh, most of the press goes to the corporate uh, interest in education and to the corporate leaders like Bloomberg and uh, this education organizing that's happening is not always reported on. So I think those are some of the things that we need to, to seek out and help. Uh, to, to piggyback on the idea of, of community activism, in a sense. Uh, Dr. Orfield, I was reading something uh, that you said, and it's, it's not community activism that creates the middle class, it's the other way around. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. Well, what we know is that people who have enough income uh, and education to have the time and training to participate effectively are much more likely to be involved in civic life. If you 
if you do have those kinds of resources in terms of preparation and in terms of you know time, um, you're much more likely to participate. So, and usually when there's really good community organizing in poor neighborhoods, a lot of it is done by really good organizers who identify with the poor but often come from another background with more training themselves. So I am very strongly um, a strong believer in organizing poor people, but it's not easy, and it, 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 there will be a lot more organization if more people get out of poverty. Back when we had a war on poverty, a civil right, enforcement of civil rights, and education reform um, in the 1960s and early 70s, we lowered the black-white achievement gap by half. Since we've gone into this high-stakes testing process and ignored these other issues, um, we have made very little progress. So we need to think about this in a, in a broader way. Um, in terms of uh, the issue that was raised earlier about housing, you know, one of the things we pointed out in our report to the Jefferson County School Board was that the housing policies aren't being coordinated with the school policies in Jefferson County and that uh, there's a lot of investment of sub housing subsidy money that actually keeps poor families in poor neighborhoods with weak schools. That should be changed. There should be things done like it's done in Montgomery, in one of the richest suburbs outside of Washington, D.C., where 15% of all the new developments have to be built for affordable housing. That's been done for many years, and it actually works. It doesn't affect the marketability of housing at all. There's many things that can be done, and there are good ideas. Here in California, for example, dropout accountability is being put into the assessment system for, for the schools. So schools, um, you know, right now, under the existing policies, if they get rid of low-achieving school students, they look better. Uh, we need to think about the schools not just as producing test scores, but as producing graduates and reward them when they do that, um, even if their test scores don't rise that much by keeping some kids who are marginal into the schools and giving them a future life. We need to think about all of these things in a more broad way because we've been locked into a very simplistic model of school reform now ever since the Reagan era, and we need to broaden that out. What are your thoughts? We want to hear from you. Give us a call at 502-814-TALK. That's 502-814-8255. Are you a community organization that has wondered why or how to even get started with partnering with schools? Do you have some innovative ideas that you think the city should consider? Give us a call. That's 502-814-TALK, 502-814-8255. You can also um, reach us through Twitter at WFPL News. Uh, Ms. Porter, I want to go back to you and, and just ask, does the size of JCPS, a lot of urban school districts have these massive amounts of uh, student populations, 100,000 students in JCPS. Does that present any challenges from a board perspective, from policy, from changing the way the system operates itself? I think the size does not impact that. We, we know what our size is, so we deal with the numbers that we have. And what we have done uh, with the leadership of Dr. Hargens is we have restructured how we do our work. And in that, we have now six area superintendents that work with a little bit over 20 schools. And the area superintendents uh, have uh, staff with them so that there's more direct contact to the schools. We have taken uh, resource teachers and put them directly in the local schools. We have put... Um, 
assistant principals in the elementary schools. We have uh, student response teams. So I think that we have, by way of our strategic plan, we have a plan that we are uh, following. And I think that we uh, we have developed a plan based on the size of our district, trying to meet the needs of the the population that we serve. And uh, Dr. Hawkbein, you've worked with some of the low-performing principals, uh, worked pretty closely with them. In fact, uh, some of them are your, um, are, you teach some of them, correct? Yes. Um, I'm curious what they say. Do they feel like they're getting the support that they need to, to do the job that they need to do? Obviously, there's a lot of pressure, especially on the low-performing schools and the low-performing principals, but I'm curious, what are they saying? Um, I, I think it depends on who you're talking to. And and when you were talking to them, one of the unfortunate things that happened is that all of, or the vast majority of schools that were identified previously were all high schools. And under the previous sort of organization, it then makes it easy to tackle high school achievement, which is in the subsequent year, you saw every high school in Jefferson County um, increase in both reading and math scores. Um, when So the strength of shrinking down to these six different um, organizational units and an assistant superintendent with each of those obviously is a smaller collection, but sometimes it can be more difficult to get something across, say, the high schools or the middle schools or the elementary schools. And so district involvement, um, one of the people I worked with at the University of Virginia was finding that they the district involvement is one of the most important things. They were having this term that they would use of the district shepherd, who so would go in and if you needed lockers painted, lockers got painted. There was no longer the bureaucratic red tape that you had to cut through. And so um, I think one of the challenges that you see in a district when it gets this size is that when you have to fill out a number of things in triplicate, it's very hard to get those resources down to the teachers, down to the students, and down to the principals. Um, But from my work, you tend to see people working very hard trying to do that as best they can for kids. And we're going to take a call right now from Steve. Uh, Steve, you're on the air. Hi, I have, I have a comment about the school reform. I'm sc- excuse me, what is that? I have a comment about the school reform sure. and where I think the, some of the answers come from. Sure, go ahead. My comment is in regards to the teachers, and I think that it really starts with the teachers. I think that uh, if teachers were more appreciated, however, also had higher expectations, uh, that those expectations would transcend to the students. I think that there's a lot of uh, kind of unique schools across the country who are really setting high expectations for students. And because those high expectations are set and met, students from all socioeconomic backgrounds are producing uh, positive things for the whole country. Uh, and I think that a lot of teachers out there aren't, uh, aren't doing well because they're not meant to be teachers. There's a lot of teachers who... Have had great experiences and think they want to teach, and that's and that's excellent. But not everyone is meant to be a teacher, and those who those who aren't are doing not only themselves a, dis, a disservice, but the students that they teach a disservice as well. Thank you for your comment, um, Mr. Hawkbein. I, I want to go back to you and, and just talk about about these high expectations, um, because with these lower graduation rates and these lower test score performances in a lot of urban districts, J, uh, JCPS among them. Are these higher expectations for these urban areas? Is that a fair? Is it fair to compare, or is it something that should be looked at? Well, I, I don't think it's fair to necessarily compare uh, inner city school with, say, an Oldham County. The comparisons aren't aren't a fair comparison. 
And when you visit these schools, which I've been in a number of them, I think it's unfair to characterize the vast majority of the educators as holding low standards or not having rigorous classrooms. I think that there's a balance and a challenge um, that teachers try to face trying to meet the needs of the students that come through their door. Are there teachers in not only Jefferson County but districts across the country that um, are probably doing a disservice to students? Yes. Are they the vast majority or the average? That has not been my experience. Um, When I go into these schools, you find dedicated leaders, dedicated teachers who are working very hard. Um, And then as almost every person has spoken on about this panel is the metrics that are used to measure these schools can sometimes be perversely applied. And, you know, there's a wonderful report put out recently about what the worst what the worst uh, math teacher in New York City looks like. And she was a wonderful teacher who, by all accounts, had done wonderful things, but the value-added metrics that they were using identified her because she was working with high-performing students. Similarly, you can have a teacher who's not very good, who's able to take low-performing students and just bump them up a little bit, and in their value-add metrics, they look very good. And so it, it's not fair, I think, to say it's just high expectations because it, there, it's not as if there's this objective measure that we can say, and this is the level that you need to meet. And like I said, for most, for, from my perspective, most of these individuals are professionals who are in schools setting high expectations and trying to produce rigorous lessons in classrooms. Uh, really quickly before we go to break, I want to go back to you, Ms. Porter, and talk about your specific district one, because obviously each board member is, is responsible for their own area and knows their area best. But what do your constituents say? What, what do you feel like they need from your perspective? What have they been saying they need, either directly in the schools or the community surrounding the schools? What, what are their suggestions and what are they saying they need? I think that what I hear um, in the district that I serve is that everyone wants their child to succeed in school. Those that do not have children in school want children to succeed, and we know that education is indeed the great equalizer. So I think that uh, we put resources in schools, but what we know for a fact is that educating our children is a community effort, that it's more than the time that they spend in school. It's the time that they spend out of school. We have started uh, out-of-school services for students where they can go and do things like um, study island and try to uh, enhance their skills. I think for me to say um, there's not a a ballpark answer because of the numbers of schools that I have in District 1. I could probably give you a list of uh, things that each individual school feels that, that they would like to have, but our priority is educating our children and with the community talking about it and enforcing it and talking about high expectations. I think that we will, in fact, get there. And we're going to go to the phones right now. Uh, Christine from Shively has a question about parent engagement. Uh, Christine, go ahead. Well, it's not so much a question about parent engagement. I just simply want to share that oftentimes um, we talked about the community organizing. I heard that comment about grassroots community organizing. Until, in my experience, until we get more information into the the hands of the parents of those students who are not achieving, parents oftentimes don't know what success looks like. So then parents get a bad rap for not wanting to be involved, but they don't know. So until we share with them, you know, what what exiting kindergarten looks like. When a kid leaves kindergarten, they should be at a certain reading level. Where if we're not giving them that information, we can't badger them and say that they don't want to be involved. 
Christine, thanks for your call. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want to um, I want to actually ask uh, Dr. Orfield and Dr. Anion what what they've been seeing as far as communication and outreach um, from the school district looks like in some of these other areas outside of Jefferson County. Well, I think it's very important to get information out to parents, and um, you know the practical reality. We did a survey of the parents in Jefferson County. Is that the the uh, the parents who are the most uh, highly educated and most affluent, um, you know, respond much more strongly to information that's posted or sent than the parents who aren't. So it really is a job that is not just the school district. The school district has to play a big role, but it's important to have information that's accessible um, on paper and on computer. It's important to have libraries and other institutions um, train people in neighborhoods where they don't have computers at home and so forth, how to access that information. It's important to have community groups and churches and so forth play a role in communicating those, those, that kind of information to families. Because what we know very clearly is that all families care a lot about their kids and really care a lot about them being educated. But people who haven't had as much success in, in school themselves um, or don't have as much sophistication in dealing with the school district, often get less information and understand less about what they should be doing with their children. So we need to have mobilization on many levels to improve the flow of information and to give parents better better information about how to help their kids and where their kids are and what, where they need to be if they're going to do what almost all parents want, which is some kind of post-secondary education for their children. Uh, Dr. Anion, I wonder if you could point to an area that's doing this outreach uh, well, uh, either a, a, a specific group or a district. Are you able to do that? Yes, I think in New York City, some of the, the uh, things that I have seen that work are, for example, when a parent comes in uh, who is angry, in many cases, teachers and principals want to get rid of that parent as soon as possible because it's a threat. But if a teacher sees or a principal can see an angry parent as an opportunity, then that is a big, that's a big deal. If you see an angry parent as an opportunity to organize the parents to work together for better resources, that is, a, that is an important thing to do. Um, that's, that's the first comment I would make, that that it's important to 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 channel apparent anger at the school district in a, in a constructive way. Um, the second thing is that a lot of times we are condescending to parents when we should be seeing them as assets. In other words, very often we see parents as deficits. We have to fix them. But I've seen in low-income communities in New York City where when parents are given an opportunity to work together with educators as change agents rather than just as volunteers or as people to be schooled, there is an uptick in in, in their uh, energy and a desire to work with the school. So this is another um, another change in educator. Um, attitudes that has to be made. In addition to seeing an angry parent as an opportunity to organize parents, we could see parents not just as as people to fix or as volunteers, but as people to 
to bring into the bosom of the school as change agents themselves and help them learn the skills that they need to become change agents. And then they can get much more involved. We'll have to take a short break when we come back more with our guests on the challenges facing urban school districts. And we'll be taking more of your calls. That number is 502-814-TALK, 502-814-8255. That's coming up on WFPL's The Next Louisville Education News Special after this. And good afternoon and welcome back. I'm Devin Kadiyama. You're listening to a WFPL News Special, part of the Next Louisville Education Project. We're talking about the challenges urban school districts face. We're joined in studio by University of Louisville Professor Craig Hawkbine. JCPS School Board member Diane Porter had a previously scheduled school visit, so we're going to let her do her job. And by phone from Los Angeles, Dr. Gary Orfield, and in New York, Dr. Jean Anion. And we are taking your calls. That number to call is 502-814-TALK, 502-814-8255. You can also reach us on Twitter at WFPL News. And we're going to go straight to the phones right now, and we're going to talk with Jeff in J-Town. Jeff, you're on the line. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to thank all the teachers for what they do. I know it's a, it's a, a difficult task, regardless of where you teach, and that you're doing the best for our students. My question really goes to the attend resides of Jefferson County. We've got four schools in the, our county that don't have resides there yet. Uh, and, uh, they're in the 98th, 99th percentile. One of them's in the 86th percentile while the other's in the 15th percentile. My question is, is given this complex issue where a school like, uh, that is in the first percentile that has a resides of 2,500 students, but only 1,110, what does that really do to the complexity of the schools when we pull students out? Uh, and have applications where uh, for for high achievers, and we don't have that heterogeneous mix in other schools. And so I'll take my question off the air. Thank you. And this uh, obviously has been an issue in Jefferson County, uh, what schools certain students can and cannot attend. Um, just before the show, uh, Craig, you, you and I were talking about an issue that you're currently looking at with with your child as well, if you can just share that. Sure. Um, I, I think I'm answering this slightly more as a parent than probably an educational researcher, but watching uh, uh, Dr. Orfield's presentation and talking about how the JCPS would make it more accessible, I actually went in and typed my home address into the site to see where my child, who's three years old, would be attending. And it just so happened that we had actually been displaced for a period of time because of a house fire, so I actually typed in our other address, which was in a different location. It was in cluster 13 versus cluster 6. And as a parent, one of the things that I realized, and as a researcher, I guess, is that in the cluster that we're currently in, my son would have far less sort of opportunity. He he has less opportunity to reach higher-performing schools. Um, his travel to those higher-performing schools was, on average, going to be larger. And then when you looked at the composition of the school, they tended to be skewed much more towards a percentage minority with a higher percentage of free and reduced lunch, which... Again, I think one of the things that we've been pointing to on this panel is for someone who is a parent and an educational researcher, this affords me the opportunity to navigate the system to put in an application to either go to one of the four non-attends um, or resides at schools or pull my child out and have them attend a private school, parochial school, or some other sort of educational organization. And th- that's a very troubling aspect. So I think... Dr. Orfield has this wonderful example of making it more accessible, but then the options that the parents have to have have to be more equitable for those kids. And again, there's an argument to be made that they need to have better options in places in which they're more disadvantaged. 
So, Dr. Orfield, I'd, I'd like to ask you, obviously the JCPS Student Assignment Plan and its system is set up to to try to provide students with equal opportunity, but when that doesn't happen, how do urban districts develop that equality? We talked a lot about community involvement and things that can happen on the policy level, but if policy doesn't kick in and funding doesn't come down through the city, through the state, what are, what are districts doing and what can schools do? Well, most districts aren't doing much. Most districts are in the mode of just emphasizing um, test scores and pressuring schools and sanctioning them and so forth. We're just doing a series of reports about resegregation across the eastern seaboard, and we're not seeing much in the way of of really good um, um, equalization inside the schools. In fact, there's deepening inequality in many school districts that have gone different ways than Jefferson County. Um, in terms of, of increasing information and helping parents understand their options, there's a good model in Hartford, Connecticut, where the university has worked with the school district to create a pretty rich information source and then has tried to train parents about how to use it. Um, in terms of what's going on in Louisville, you know, it's imperfect what this what the plan the current plan tries to do is to minimize the long transportation that existed under the last plan but it means there's not perfect equality between the clusters there's there's these trade-offs that have to be made um, and it's very important that parents in places that have let fewer good options inside their cluster have more information about outside of cluster options um, and, of course, it's important that we create more really good magnet schools, especially in the disadvantaged areas. That's one of the strong recommendations that we made in our report. Uh, so we're not, the, the set of choices that there exist at any time is not fixed for all time. It can be changed. Um, and so I think that another thing that people who are listening to this should understand is if you are a middle-class, well-educated parent, your kids are not going to be hurt in any way by experiencing diversity. They're going to be enriched in terms of preparation for the kind of society that they're going to be living in as adults. Parents, kids from families like that are most shaped at home. Their, their opportunities and their, their performance is much more affected by home than by the school. It's for disadvantaged kids that the schools are really critical. Um, my own kids went mostly to Washington, D.C. and Chicago Public Schools. They went to some of the greatest universities in the country. Then two of them are attorneys. The two of them are teaching college. You know, going to a diverse school with poor kids doesn't hurt a middle-class kid. It, it, it rewards them in terms of understanding the world and being ready for a society where whites, for example, are going to be one of numerous minorities for major racial groups. Um, so I'd say one, two things. One is improve the options, and, and the second is don't worry so much. Uh, Dr. Anion, uh, in your research and your years of studying um, wealth disparities in certain urban um, school districts, how bad does a system have to be? How bad does a system have to get before you start to see some real change? I feel like a lot of school districts patchwork their problems or they take care of little issues here and there, and rarely do we see true reforms that totally flip something upside down to try something new. But how, how bad does a system have to be? That's a strange question. How bad does it have to be before something's done? I think the the question that we could be asking is, what are the better things to be doing once the system gets um, in distress? Uh, and the whole push towards 
charter schools, privatization, um, standardized testing, and these are things that um, people who are not involved in schools are putting on the school systems as a way of pushing back government and the public sphere away from the schools, um, closing school boards, putting managers, private managers in in cities like in Detroit um, and in in the in Michigan, um, I think the, the thing we ought to be asking is: Are there alternatives to to what Race to the Top um, and No Child Left Behind offer? For example, Race to the Top doesn't provide money to people who need it. It offers a market system of competition where you have to to vie for this money. So just the way it's set up is, is um, to my mind, an unfair system. And we're going to go to the phones uh, right now, and we're going to talk with Bob in St. Matthews. Bob, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Thank you for taking the call. Uh, Twenty years ago, Kara passed. Uh, the budget director from the state of Kentucky came down, said, uh, ask any question you want. I asked how many... How much money have you budgeted to get parental involvement? And they said zero. And because for an entire year when the committee met, it was parents, parents, parents were really involved. CARE originally started out with uh, three parents, two teachers, and a principal. It is now two parents, three parents, three teachers, and a principal. So parents organizationally have taken a back seat as well. And on a scale of 0 to 10, the website has uh, Jefferson County Schools rated as a 4 out of 10. And um, Michelle Wee, I think it is, the Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. superintendent that got relieved because of her aggressive activities as superintendent, uh, she has a national website. She rated, uh, rated Kentucky as an F. And the numerical score of that F is 0 not a 10, a 20, 30, 40, but a zero for Kentucky's ability to outreach uh, to parents. So there's a lot of lip service about involving parents, but there's very little resources allocated toward making sure that happens. Uh, Thank you. I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you for your call, Bob. Uh, I've actually, just the year and a half that I've been in the district, um, that's been a question that I always ask schools and I always ask uh, district officials is what is being done for parental involvement. It's a difficult question because... um, it's hard to to really judge how much is adequate overlap from the school district extending its arm to uh, somebody's home. And I, what I've actually seen while being in Jefferson County is a lot of individual efforts um, in individual classrooms. So some teachers will go as far as to have a Facebook page, or some teachers will actually tweet certain things that are happening in the classrooms using new technology. So it seems like these efforts, while maybe they're not organized on a district-wide level, are happening in certain classrooms. Uh, and again, I, I don't really have the answer as to as far as um, what's adequate and what should be done in these classrooms, but, but I appreciate your call. Uh, we're going to hit another call from Amy in East Louisville. Amy, you're on the air. Hi. Um, I'm a parent, a non-educator. I've had uh, two kids that have gone through three of the um, very successful schools in the east end of Louisville, downtown as well. And um, my question, I've been involved in the SBDM, and a huge problem that I have seen is how principals are evaluated in the county. Um, I was hugely disappointed in that 
um, their review process and um, evaluations were not based on any type of internal feedback, not from teachers or uh, parents, um, only from their peers who are not specifically in the school. So if you have a motivated principal, um, the school is fine. But if you have a principal who's not, and this could address the problems in the underperforming uh, schools, in uh, specifically how is Jefferson County going to address that and how, um, what is best practice nationally? And thanks for your call. I've actually been um, doing a couple stories the past few weeks on this idea of the new Kentucky teacher and principal evaluations that is working its way through the General Assembly right now. Um, the Jefferson County Teachers Association is actually pushing to have more f- wiggle room when they when the state lays out its own evaluation system so that it can go in and it actually wants, the union wants to use student surveys as a way of measuring principal and uh, teacher effectiveness and other measures that maybe other districts don't have access to, such as certain student or, or teacher surveys. So that legislation is currently being worked out through the um, state legislature, and it may or may not include uh, the ability for districts to have more freedom without the school board approval, or the state school board approval, that is. Um, so, so Anne, thank you for your call. Uh, we just have a couple more minutes, and in 20 seconds or less, I'd just like to go around to our panelists and ask for, for final words. And again, just in 20 seconds or less, uh, Dr. Hawkbein. Um I think what you've heard this around the table today is that it's more than just a school problem. And the more sort of mind you can get around the table to get good teachers, get good leaders into schools and ameliorate poverty, the better chance students of disadvantaged backgrounds are going to have to succeed and all students will have to succeed. And Dr. Anion? Yes, I would second that. When you remember that over 60% of the achievements that um, we measure in students' is attributable to the um, environment outside of school, then we we know how much we have to work on social policy as well as education reform. Thank you. And Dr. Orfield, in 20 seconds. One of the things we need to do is to respect and support good teachers who make a difference and principals who make a difference in really disadvantaged schools and not to just apply uh, simplistic metrics because really reforming a, a school with lots of problems is a multi-year effort, and it has to be a team effort, and it has to be rewarded and respected. And we'll have to leave it at that. I want to thank our guests, uh, JCPS Board Chair Diane Porter, University of Louisville Professor Craig Hawkbine, UCLA Professor Dr. Gary Orfield, and City of University of New York's Dr. Jean Anion. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And you can find more information at WFPL.org. I'm Devin Kadiyama.